We arrive here today to debate at social distances from each other. There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Your Politics podcast from RTE News. I'm Sandra Hurley and I'm joined by our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham, and RTE Radio's Philip Boucher-Hayes, who is just back from the COP26 conference in Glasgow. Well, by 2030, we will have switched to 1 million electric vehicles and 80% of our electricity will be generated by renewables and there will be 500,000 more daily trips by walking or cycling. That's according to the Climate Action Plan unveiled by the government this afternoon. So I'm here today with two climate nerds. That's an affectionate Thanks, term, by Sandra. the way, guys. Thank you. So we're going to unpick the detail, but no, Philip... No, I take offence. Oh, 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 this is off to a bad start, I think. I, I hope it's not all downhill from here. Well, Philip, actually, I just wanted to check with you because you're just back from Glasgow and um, just before any other journalist put in a Freedom of Information request on this one, how exactly did you travel to Glasgow? Are you trying to do a gotcha, Sandra Hurdy? Absolutely. This is my big <laughs> scoop, my breakthrough in RTE. Well, you're a horrible person, and because you're such a horrible person, it's going to really, really annoy you to learn that I sailed and got the train over there last Saturday. And in fact, I got caught up in a climate event on the way to the climate event because the southern borders region of Scotland had been hit by a rain bomb and there was uh, railway viaducts that were getting flooded. So it was an absolute odyssey. But then... In the interests of full and total transparency, because life is really complicated and we can't always do the things that we want to or aspire to do, I had to get a plane back before returning next week to the conference by uh, rail and ferry again. Okay, okay. Well, I, I think we can accept that. The rail and sail is the, is the much more right-on mode of transport because we did see a lot of stuff on social media of the, you know, the giant vehicles being used by uh, some of the dignitaries to drive to the conference, uh, which obviously is not uh, the signal that they want to send at the moment. But what are your overall impressions, Philip? We've heard a lot about the pledges. No, 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 no. How did you get to work today? How, how did Paul Cunningham <laughs> I, get to I work I took the today, bus, please? Dublin bus. Took the dart. Oh, I see. Wow. Oh, yeah, you're really boring, turning this really. back. <laughs> Remind me not to work with people from the radio centre. This is some inter-RTE <laughs> stuff here. Some beef being aired. But uh, just to get back onto the subject, so you're back from COP. Is it more than a talking shop? We're hearing a lot about these pledges that are being made, but some of the really big polluting countries uh, are not signing up to these. Is it going to have a lasting meaning? God, yeah, look, it is more than a talking shop. It absolutely is. You'll remember that the key figure here is before the conference started, all of the pledges added up to 2.7 degrees of warming, which would be a pretty hellish world to live in, you know, given that we're at 1.1, 1.2 now. And what has happened, and this is not an official figure, so it carries all sorts of health warnings, and it is only if all of the pledges are actually delivered upon, but those that have been made to date will bring us to 1.9 degrees of warming. So the conference has met one of the major achievements, or sorry, one of the major targets or goals of the Paris Agreement, 
which is to keep warming below 2 degrees and as close to 1.5 as possible. And 1.9 is, it's still a pretty hellish world. You know, that's bye-bye Maldives, bye-bye Marshall Islands, um, all sorts of interruptions to food production here, and God only knows what kind of extremes of droughts and floods. But it is moving in the right direction, and it is something to build on. And Paul, what about the the Taoiseach's contribution, Michal Martin, there earlier this week, and he was centre, obviously, today with the Climate Action Plan. Is he fully on board with everything that the Greens are pushing in government? I think that uh, Michal Martin has signed up to this. I believe that when you look at him, um, even when he was announcing the Climate Action Bill earlier this year, um, when he was talking about the reaction to the carbon budget, when he was talking for an hour and a half um, in the press conference detailing the Climate Action Plan this evening, I mean, uh, Eamon Ryan left, uh, Leo Varadkar left, last man standing was Michal Martin still answering all of the questions. And you can see that he's conversant. You can see that he is um, aware of the range of issues that are associated with climate change. You might disagree with him, but what you can say is that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, so I think it was clear that when he was standing over in um, Glasgow, they're always sort of slightly strange speeches. You only get a couple of minutes and you're supposed to, it's more of a pitch to the heart than the, than the head or talking about uh, the granular detail of finance. But nonetheless, you could see that he was saying, I'm going to act on it. And some of the details that are contained in this climate action plan are not going to win in votes. And he's saying we're going to do it anyway. So to a certain extent, he's um, standing on his record. And then just moving on to the climate action plan. And we've got now these sectoral targets, this range is set for various emissions reductions. Is this going to work? Is it deliverable? What do you make of it? I think it's a little bit like um, um, uh, like a football game. We're at a half ha- half time because we've got a climate action plan which is supposed to try and ensure that we reduce emissions by fifty one percent from twenty eighteen levels um, by the year twenty thirty. So that's the the overarching target. And what we have here is a plan. We've got well, let's see. I have it in front of me here. We go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So there's seven sectors, and within those seven sectors, they're given a range by which they're going to reduce emissions. Not a number, but so, for example, let's pick up one like um, transport. The range is between 42 and 50% um, reduction of emissions. So that's like an 8% gap. But if you go to electricity, it's between 62 and 81%. So that's a 19% gap. So it's very difficult to work out whether or not this is going to be achieved because we don't have a specific um, figure. If you look at agriculture, it's going to reduce its emissions between 22 and 30%. And if you go to the actual chapter there, there's 40 different actions that are going to be taken and which are going to achieve that range. And yet they don't, uh, they aren't specific on what exactly any of those actions are going to achieve. They're not saying, for example, a reduction in nitrates in fertilizer, that's going to achieve a 50% of, of the target. So it's very difficult at this particular point to say if it's going to work. It's half time. So when we'll really know is um, over the next four months, what's known as the, uh, stay with me, it's not too long, um, the, what's known as the, the carbon budgets are going through, the Oireachtas are going to take around four months to go through. That's effectively specifying the rate with which we're going to reduce emissions. A little bit slower in the first five years, a little bit faster in the second five years. And as that works its way through, those ranges are going to narrow to a specific number. And those actions are going to have to be linked to that number. And it's at that point, probably February or March, that we're really going to be able to judge what they're planning on doing and be able to assess whether or not we believe it's, it's um, you know, ambitious, but not going to happen or ambitious, likely to happen. We, you know, it's at that point we'll be able to know. And Philip, what do you make of it all? It's a lot of information to take in today. Uh, what, what are your considerations so far? 
I'd sum it up like this, Sandra. I would say that I think that the government has decided not to make the perfect the enemy of getting started. You'll hear that line from uh, Michael McGrath. He said, look, what we're trying to do here is bring the people with us, not bludgeon them. Because when I look into each of these sectors, there's a kind of a... So there's sort of a cognitive dissonance about the numbers. They just do not add up to what the science says that they need to add up to to get to 50% to 51% reductions by 2030 and then net zero on by, by 2050. But it almost doesn't matter because... Paul will give you chapter and verse. In fact, sorry, you saw it all yourself. The way that we spent the last 10 years trying to get a, a climate action, uh, or sorry, a climate act, uh, and it, the support for it waxed and waned, and it just took a decade to get to a point where we were actually at the starting gate. We could very easily spend another decade with each sector pointing fingers at each other and saying, no, you've got to give more, no, I want to give less, no, I can't do this, you should do that. And we would never get anywhere. This is very much about getting started. The numbers won't add up to where they need to get to right now, but they can be adjusted down the line is what I would imagine the government's calculation here is. Because, look, I don't, I don't know, do you, do you want me to go into it and spell out much uh, short of the targets we are in agriculture or in transport or in electricity because well, we can the, get into just, some the of the individual sectors I, I think now uh, Paul maybe if I come to you just on energy it's slated to do the heavy lifting here yeah. uh, possibly up to 80% of the reductions but we know we're already in trouble that the fossil fuel plants might be kept going for longer they're talking about, we know that data centres are huge, using huge amounts of electricity. There's a review about data centres, but are we seeing enough concrete actions here that are going to get us to that point? Well, there's, you know, it was interesting to see him and Ryan, he was very bullish on this point um, in the press conference. And he had three main points. First is that um, it may be the case that a big um, Scandinavian uh, offshore power company pulled out of a deal it had with the ESB, but he said there's 70 other companies um, who want to sign up. They're going to have three auctions over the next decade and they're going to be able to deliver on it. He said, yes, there were concerns about things like um, offshore planning, environmental planning, but the maritime bill, which is going through the Iraq, this is going to be able to deal with that. And so what you had a sense was someone who was saying, you know, this is part of the niggle, niggly bit, but what we're definitely going to do is to force it through from a legislative point of view. And we believe that the market is there to deliver it. This isn't just going to be the government paying out. This is something where they believe business will want to be because money can be made. And I thought that was an interesting one. I think when it comes to energy, um, they've always been very confident due to um, the wind that we have available to us, that this is something we can do well. They look at a company like Airgrid and say it's really good at moving electricity around when, you know, if the wind is flowing, we use it. If not, we're able to call up um, other, uh, say, gas-fired power stations to make it work. So on that one, I think um, they probably are more confident than they are on the others. It's when you get into something like agriculture, which um, Philip is very conversant about, that's where it begins to get a bit sticky. Yeah, Philip, let me ask you about agriculture. We know that last year, for example, agriculture, according to the estimates, it contributed the most to Ireland's emissions, uh, but it's going to be asked to do the least. And we know it, there's already it's already quite contentious. We've heard a lot about it in the Dáil this week. What do you make of what they've said out there? Yeah, as Paul said, what they've said that they're going to look for is in the region of 22 to 30 percent reductions by 2030. Um, and there is no talk of reducing herd size at any point in this, that all that they are 
relying on to get them to that figure of 22 or 30 percent is efficiencies and efficiencies means different ways of spreading slurry it means different use of different kinds of nitrogen that don't uh, fertilizers as i mean that don't oxidize in the same way it's about the planting of clover all kinds of different practices which are already happening on farms and are delivering limited results the problem is there though that if you take every single known efficiency you add in a few more that have haven't been tested properly yet or trialed at any kind of scale and you apply them 100% to every single farm in the country, you still only get to about 18%. So there's a really big gap there between uh, where they will get to with what they say that they're going to do and how, where they want to be. If you wanted to get to 30%, the most recent figure would suggest that you would have to see the suckler herd, this is the beef herd, falling from 1 million to about 200,000. And there would also have to be a smaller reduction in the dairy herd as well. So the numbers don't add up. But remember, I think that the starting point here is let us not make the perfect the enemy of actually getting started. Let's not provide numbers that will give fuel to a row between IFA and IBEC, for instance, let's just actually get started on the process. I, I think you're right there, Philip, because one of the things that Micheál Martin was talking about at the press conference, he was saying that um, he felt that the media had an obsession on the size of the herd and the focus should really be on the reduction of emissions. That's where the game is at and that's where he was going. So to a certain extent, he was sidestepping it. Uh, someone like Harry McGee of the Irish Times was trying to press him on a recent increase in the question of dairy. And he was saying, you're talking about the stabilisation of the herd. Does that still include the possibility of dairy going up by 3%. And once again, Michal Martin didn't want to be specific on it. And I think you're right. What he's trying to do is, you know, start up the electric truck and get it trundling down the road rather than having a big biff with everyone and the truck still standing there. But Paul, on the politics of this, the, this is already seen as very sensitive. Uh, the Taoiseach mentioned today that Charlie McConnell, the agriculture minister, has gone to nearly every mart in the country to talk directly to farmers. Eamon Ryan spoke about how they don't want this narrative of farmers versus greens. But we know farmers are planning a protest later this month. It simply is contentious and it is seen as difficult. Uh, and how is the government going to get past all of that? Yeah, I mean, if you test the temperature with, say, some of the rural independent TD, some of the language they're using is very, very strong. And from what I'm hearing is that reflects some of the concern that's in their community, that what is going to happen is that um, they feel that they have a marginal existence and this could push them over the side. So it's a huge body of work for the government to come up with a way of being able to say, no, this is the way forward. They're trying to do it in two ways. One they're saying is that they've got a huge consultation process going to get up and running and they also have a just transitioned um, fund. So this means that if people who are going to be left behind as a result of any change, money is going to be going to them. We've heard about the carbon tax um, and that's going to deliver around nine and a half billion. I think one and a half billion of that is going to go to the farming sector to try and say to them, we recognise that there are difficulties, we recognise there are changes, but do you know what? Here is some help. The second thing they're going to try and do is be able to talk to them in the context of emerging markets. Um, it was Leo Varadkar who was talking earlier on today about how you know commerce and climate were beginning to merge and consumers were following it. So that if you are a, a producer, a producer of food or indeed of anything, you have to be cognizant of where the market's going to be in five years. You're, you're going to be asked, what is the carbon intensity of your product? Consumers are going to go elsewhere if you're not able to have some form of a derivative product which is able to answer that question. So what they're also trying to say to farmers is, 
looking down the road in 10 years, this is coming at you. So you'd be much smarter to avail of the grants and supports that are going to be coming out now to deliver on this climate action plan than trying to resist it. So that's where they're going to be. I think that if you look at, um, say, Labour, they're sort of more or less on board with the climate action plan. Same so with the Social Democrats. With Sinn Féin, that's a different beast altogether. With Sinn Féin, they've got two main issues. One is with the carbon tax, which they say is a real problem. And the second thing, when it comes to farming, they're saying that, um, you, uh, you just heard Philip there talking about the suckler herd, that this is um, a, a herd which needs to be protected. And they're also talking about carbon leakage. They're phrasing it in the context of a big trade deal which took nearly 20 years to conclude the Mercosur trade deal with South American countries. Now, it hasn't actually been finalised. It hasn't come into force. And there isn't any indication that, as far as I can see, it's going to come anytime soon. But Mary Lou MacDonald mentioned it three times in the past week saying that if there's Brazilian beef, they're burning down the forests and they're going to take that beef and deliver it over here. But you're trying to knock out a farmer in the west of Ireland. That doesn't make sense. So I think that... So is Sinn Féin, do you think they're weak in climate action policy? Some of the other parties have sort of suggested that. I think the Taoiseach said something this week about them trying to have it both ways. I definitely think that the government believes this is one place where they think that they can maybe not turn around but halt the Sinn Féin juggernaut. They've just come at them. Leo Varadkar has called them climate sceptics. Um, you have uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar or Taoiseach Michal Martin I did it again. Damn. <laughs> uh, Michal Martin saying you're just sitting on the fence. You're just sitting on the fence. You're trying to sort of say you're in favour of anything or opposed to anything but you're not prepared to take any of the tough decisions. I think that's going to be an ongoing clash. It's going to intensify over the next four months as this climate action plan is finalised. Mm. And Philip, I wanted to ask you Sad, about... I don't think... Yeah. Go on. I, I was just going to say, I don't think that these news that the um, farmers are going to protest next month, I think it would be news if they decided not to protest because it is a part of the syntax of the way in which the IFA lobbies is that there will always be and has been since Rickard DC led the IFA back in the 1960s, a protest following any movement. So it wouldn't have mattered what percentage number was put on the ag figure. There would have been a protest because this is part of how they get their message heard. Both We're going to Leinster see those House tractors in, in Marion Square, aren't we? It's, it's guaranteed. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me of Joe oh, Ray used to have that phrase, crisis in farming. Yeah, uh, and if you are to read the... Uh, front page of uh, their favourite publications. If you're to listen to Farmers Talk, there is always the permanent crisis or chaos or war or a battle that is being fought. But here is where I am sympathetic and where I think that people need to actually sit up and pay attention to farmers is that while all of this stuff has to be demanded of farming along with every other sector. The science just simply says that it has to be done. They can't look with any confidence to Brussels coming in and making sure that they cushion them with a just transition because the single farm payment has, for smaller farmers, been consistently getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Farm incomes have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller all that time. Quite simply, there is real reason to suspect that if you were a farmer, that Brussels is not going to pay for this, or at least not pay for it in the way that farmers feel that they should be compensated in order to give them some kind of a living that doesn't push them off the farm to try and find an off-farm income. And Philip, what about the cost of all this and financing? We heard today that uh, this plan is likely to cost €125 billion Euro to implement, the Taoiseach said, a combination of public and private financing. There's no further detail there. Perhaps it's a little vague. A lot of this is going to come at a cost. Where do you think all that is going uh, going to come from? I know it was a big topic at COP as well. <clears throat> 
well, this is the toughest question for Sinn Féin to answer. Before I interrupted you there, I think this is where Paul was going with that conversation, is how do you do any of this without carbon taxation of some kind? And what Sinn Féin haven't answered yet is... Why is it that they don't favour a model of carbon taxation where, yes, you do tax everybody who can afford it and then you or you tax everybody across the board, but then you give back to those who can't in the areas where they are most affected? It's a, a model of carbon taxation that has worked elsewhere in the world in order to cushion the blow and actually provide a trust transition. But it's a question that Sinn Féin continually sidesteps. Just going back to the farmer thing, um, the... Uh um, independent MEP um, Luke Flanagan, um, who sits on the Agricultural Committee in um, the European Parliament, had a, had a statement out earlier, and he was just talking once again about certain protections, but he also was talking to the farmers themselves, and this is an echo of what um, Philip was saying. He said, farmers themselves must begin to think differently. Farming sustainability is not a zero-sum game where environmental action comes at a cost to the farmer. Many basic agromatic practices such as increasing clover content in grassland, um, incorporating um, integrated pest management in arable farming can add to farming profitability while delivering on environmental goals. And there does seem to be um, opportunities there and it would be a shame if those opportunities were lost in the is agriculture doing enough or not? And let's move on to the virus, I think, just before we finish up. And uh, Philip, you were just at a giant conference with, you know, hundreds, maybe perhaps a couple of thousand people. I'm not sure how many exactly were there. How did it feel to be back in, in a large gathering like that? Uh, none of us have experienced anything like that for a long time. Very, very scary, except everybody was really doing the very best that they could to protect everybody around them. We were all wearing masks all the time. You would have seen reporters taking masks off uh, to deliver their pieces to camera, but they were going straight back on. We were all doing uh, antigen tests before entering the COP uh, every single day. So... Look, it, it could be the greatest super spreader event anywhere in the world right now. Uh, but my sense is that everybody who had gotten there was so intent on making sure that their uh, infectiousness didn't uh, in some way end up affecting the uh, the proceedings at the COP negatively that I would be, obviously there's going to be outbreaks, there's going to be cases, but I would be fingers crossed fairly confident that it hasn't had a major impact. And Paul, back home, clearly there's rising cases, they're, they're going up quite quickly, but the hospitalizations and the ICU numbers are not increasing at that rate. Is that the key point when it comes to the government deciding if there ever might have to be more restrictions introduced, particularly in the run-up to Christmas? Well, the um, government has been loath to give us the um, special mathematical number, um, which explains when they extend or um, remove restrictions. Um, the thing which is continually mentioned, though, is the pressure on hospitals. And because we operate our hospitals traditionally at such a high level, it doesn't take much for them to come under pressure. You can see the vaccine benefit and numbers are going up, but, you know, the numbers in hospitals haven't been uh, so high as to overwhelm or overwhelm ICU. But I think you have to be right. Looking at the socialisation, looking at the numbers, maybe in two weeks' time, middle of November, with one eye to Christmas, is the government going to have to say this is a risk? 
they remember Christmas as a time they got burned when they took a wrong decision, uh, uh, you know, as the opposition was saying. And what happened was that people um, got sick and it was a big, big problem for them. So I think that would be the thing to look for. Maybe the second, third week in November, that's the point where they're going to have to have an assessment. Can we continue to do this or do we run the risk as amid the socialisation of Christmas where it's going to be a massive problem? Yeah, and it is the last thing that the government wants to contemplate. The whole way through the reopening since May, they haven't wanted to reverse things. But it is contradictory when they are telling people to mind their socialisation, but they've just opened up nightclubs. So, Yeah, well, they do say that you, what you can say is that nightclubs are responsible for the higher numbers. This is sort of much broader than that. But I suppose it's emblematic. You, you do wonder. You look at those things and you say, just gosh... Um, but they will always be able to point to the Neffet letter and say, Neffet said it was OK. It wasn't that they said, forget about Neffet, it's time to dance. Um, it, they had the little piece of paper yes. to give them that little bit of comfort. Yes, a bit of political cover, I think, very important. So we're going to leave it there for this week. My thanks to Paul Cunningham and Philip Boucher-Hayes. Thanks for listening to the Your Politics podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.